Okay, John 1, 1 through 14, some excerpts. Let me read this passage many are familiar with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, yet to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God, born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now John wrote his account of Jesus' life much later than any of the others who lived with Jesus and wrote one. Uh, he was older than the other authors when he wrote it. He'd had time to reflect. He had had years to try and assign meaning to this wild, turbulent experience of Jesus. And having had time to reflect on Jesus, on God, on the nature of things, he was the author who most directly drew a link between Jesus and divinity. He was the one who most clearly saw how Jesus reflected the divine presence. So he began his account with this well-known passage. Now the others who tell the story of Jesus start off with a genealogy. They start off saying, Jesus was the son of this guy, who was the son of this guy, who was the son of this guy, and so forth all the way back. And that was the accepted way of talking about great people back in that day to position them in history, to say who they belonged to, to position them in time and space and say, this is who this person is because these are his people and this is how he got here or how she got here. John, on the other hand, begins with an abstraction. John begins having sat for years and years out on that island of Patmos, having time and brain space to mull things over, he starts with this well-known passage that positions Jesus within the divine. In the beginning was a Greek construct, he says, and that construct is labeled with the word logos. We use that word all the time in our lives today. It is the word uh, that is at the end of every endeavor of study. If you want to study life, you have bios, logos, biology. If you want to study God, you have theos, logos, a construct or an understanding or a mind about God. If you want to study human beings, you have anthropos, which is humanity, and then you have construct, mind, thought, consideration. So we use that word all the time, and it was a Greek word that had very profound meaning. So what John is saying is, in the beginning, universal thought existed. In the beginning, universal idea existed. In the beginning, mind, heart existed. That's what Logos meant. And what John did is assign divinity to that seminal source from which all comes. Pure mind, pure heart, pure thought. It existed and it was divine. In the beginning, divine existed. And from that seminal source, from that seminal idea, thought, heart, and mind, all that is made was made. 
So he's saying there was divine, there was idea, thought, word, and then from that source, there was stuff. From the source of mind, this world came to be. From that source, the universe, everything that is tangible and touchable, all the world of matter and the world of time came into existence. And then he says, and that same source, that same divine thought, that same logos, it showed up somewhere else. It showed up in the person of Jesus. And having had time to reflect on this, he says, and it was amazing, and it was disorienting, and it changed everything. It changed everything that we understood about God. It changed everything that we understood about time and space. It changed everything that we understood about human nature. It changed everything, he says, as he looks back. Divine source existed beyond the tangible world, and then divine source showed up right here in the middle of the tangible world. And later, Paul comes and builds on Jesus' understanding, and he says, and divine source exists inside of every one of us in the indwelling presence of the divine. So divine exists outside of us. It existed in the person of Jesus, and now we see it exists even within our own beings. The word was existing outside, then the word was present inside. So that's what he's saying, is that the divine was at home within itself, and then the divine was here with us, dwelling with us. Now that word for dwelling that's used in verse 14 is the Greek word skenu. It means really to tent. It's translated to tabernacle, but really that was just a way of saying to tent. So John was framing his experience of Jesus in his own mind this way. The divine was comfy within itself, thinking, emanating, creating, communing, doing whatever it is the divine does. And then the divine went on a camping trip, set up a tent in the person of Jesus. At home, then on a camping trip. At home, then on a journey. And this way of framing the experience of Jesus has deeply shaped how we Christians have explored our own spiritual lives through the centuries because that motif of journeying, of not being home, this has really shaped how we think about our own spiritual lives. It shouldn't be surprising that a lot of how we think has to do with this journeying idea because the spiritual life lends itself to being understood that way, home and then not home. We use terms like the heart's true home, the spiritual journey. This home and away concept is important to us, a longing for our true home, sojourning in a foreign land. These images help us experience our spirituality. Even our Christmas story, the beginning of Jesus' story, begins with an away-from-home theme. The manger, no room at the inn, the stable, the arduous trip, not home but away, not settled but journeying. And we think about Christmas in our own experience of it this many years later. Home is a very important part of it. We sing songs about how important it is for us to be home for Christmas. We sing about that, but at the core, the Christmas story is about homelessness. It's about not being home. So I thought it would be good for us on this last Sunday before Christmas to think a little bit about what home is. My kids are home for Christmas this week, and it's been nice. Um, So I've been thinking what home is like, how it works, 
is home. The Norman Rockwell reality of caring grandmothers and warm foods and soft colors and nice smells, crackling fires, the smell of coffee. Is that, is that what it is? In my 20s, I was living in China for an extended time. And when November came around, I got together with several American expats, and one of them had a frozen turkey overnighted to her, and she cooked it, and it was very meaningful to be around familiar American sights and American smells, and we tried our best to bring the things that we could find in local markets that would approximate, you know, stuffing and cranberry sauce, and was not easy to do, but it was close. And as much as I was loving and savoring this traveling adventure, there was a part of me that longed for this vague and hard-to-define sense of home. I, uh, I even missed my more than slightly dysfunctional family that day. I missed the, uh, the family joke that came around every year when we put out the salt and pepper shakers because the salt and pepper shakers were um, shaped as a... Um, Big male, big fanned feather turkey and a smaller one I assumed was a female turkey. But somewhere during the years, we had lost the uh, cork that held the salt in. And so my grandmother used a Band-Aid on the bottom. And that led to all kinds of jokes. <laughs> and every year they were the same. And every year they just didn't get old. People kept laughing at them. <laughs> and I missed the jokes. And I missed the smell of cigar smoke as the men smoke, as the men folk gathered out on the porch to talk about man stuff. And as a young person, I remember longing to be one of the men folk. And I missed the familiarity and I missed the casualness and I missed the accepting part of home. Home summons up in us this concept of an experience of the past. You probably feel something about home when you hear the music that was popular when you were in high school or when you were in college. Perhaps you think about home when you see or when you reflect on the house in which you grew up. My mother gave my youngest son a picture that used to hang in my bedroom when I was growing up. And when I'm in his room and I consider, I try not to go into his room very often. (laughs) But when I do go there and I consider that picture, I do evokes memories of this idea that is related to home. And there is something inside of us, especially at the holidays, that longs for that. But that creates a problem for us. Because life is always changing. Life is impermanent. It's always morphing, and it's always evolving. Consequently, home isn't there for us when we go back for it. It's a moving target. The house that you grew up up in may still be there, But you are not who you were when you lived there. You might be able to go back and touch the walls and walk the halls and be in the rooms and be on the staircases and you might be able to get the familiar smells back. But home, it turns out, is more memory than place. Home is more an internal reality than an external one. We might be able to get back to those four walls, but we can't remain at home or even experience home in any permanent sense at all. Further, the people who defined home for you, they are changing as well. They are morphing. They are no longer who they were. So home becomes, for us, a moving target. Now, for some of us, this is really good news, because for some of us, home was an awful experience. Home was something that we don't want to repeat But there is nevertheless a longing for something that we define as home. It is 
familiarity, but familiarity can't be had in an ever-changing reality. It's comfy, cozy feelings, but those things can't be had when they're not static. And the us that is relating to the context for which we yearn, that us is also always changing and always moving. And I imagine that this desire for something static that never will be static, that this reality might have something to do with the common malaise that many people feel around the holidays. Many report feeling more depressed during the holidays. The Mood Disorder Association of America reports more depression calls come in in November and December than in the other months. And I also imagine this might be why the holidays are often so much a minefield that we need to navigate because we and our loved ones have this sense of expectation to put on the moment of the holidays, that it's an expectation that cannot be had, but we do put that expectation on it, which creates this extra stress, which causes these explosions that go off. So, home, a moving target. Daniel twisted his ankle before coming home for Christmas pretty badly, and Denise was actually glad that it happened. (laughs) She said, now maybe he'll stay at home with his foot propped up and he'll sit by the fire and we can talk and we can catch up and all these, and he won't be out cavorting about as he does. Maybe he'll sit still and chat and he won't be off and it didn't happen, but she she, she thought it might. And I agreed with her and I got to ask, how sick is that? (laughs) That we are happy that our child is injured just so that we can recapture this sense of home that we once had. As our children were young and they stayed behind the gate and they would talk to us. (laughs) But the ancient spiritual masters teach us better. Home is not permanent, they tell us. Home is elusive, they tell us. Home cannot be accessed the way you're trying to access it. There's an old country hymn that says, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Jesus warned his followers, that it would be this way. Foxes have holes that they call home, he said. Birds have nests that they call home. But if you follow me, it's going to feel to you like you have no home. There will be no place for you to lay your head. And this is how John frames his experience of Jesus. In the beginning, divine word was home, and then divine word went wandering and entered the world that is ruled by time and by decay and everything changing. And that will be our experience too, he's saying. But as we dismantle our expectations of finding a true home in the way that we have intuitively looked for it, Jesus trains us to express those same longings in a very different way. Home can't be there the way that we are looking for it. It will always elude us, but there is another way. Yes, the spiritual life is the life of a sojourner. Moses was driven from the comfort of his home in order to find his destiny. Joseph was driven from his for the same reason. Jacob was driven from his home in order to find his character. Joseph and Mary were wandering in search of a place to lay their heads where on journeys during the days that we walk this planet, we may find oases along the way, but they are transient at best. As precious as family can be, it is a temporary place of respite. As precious as friendships are, they are ephemeral. They are impermanent. Nothing is permanent in this world. Nothing remains. Our experience of home will consequently always be unraveling. 
Home will always be a temporary reality. Its permanence will always be an illusion. Home will always slip away from us. But there is another truth. This is the last Sunday of Advent. Advent, the time that we remember that God has come for us, the time that we remember that God is always coming to us. And ultimately, here is what ancient wisdom tells us, that only in the divine will we find our heart's true home. Only in the divine will we find our heart's true home. Well, that is just such trivial religious tripe. Who buys that stuff? (laughs) If given a choice between happy hearth and happy home and this vague sense that God is the heart's true home, hearth and home looks pretty good every time. But only at first glance. Because if you consider what it is about home that we yearn for, we realize that this starts to make more sense. When we are yearning for home, we're yearning for a set of experiences. As I mentioned, many of us had awful, awful memories of our homes, and we want nothing more to do with it, and we're trying everything that we can to distance ourselves from that experience as rapidly as we can. We have no nostalgia for that thing called home at all. It's not the house that we want to be around. It's not the people that we want around. We want to stay around. But even in that situation, there is still a yearning for home. So what is it we're yearning for? We're not longing for the house. We're not longing for the place. We're longing for love. We're longing for a sense of belonging that often happens for people in home. We long for that feeling of being given patience when we're young and when we're stupid and when we're pains in the neck and people keep extending patience to us. We're yearning for patience. We yearn to be around good people who will strengthen us and who will support us. We want gentleness from elders who have wisened over the years. We want to be comforted in our sorrows. We want to know that we will be forgiven no matter, no matter how badly we fail. These are the feelings that we are longing for when we are longing for home. Coffee and the smell of bacon and the comfy chair, these things might be associated. They might travel together. But our yearning isn't for the walls, and it's not for the smells, and it's not for the sights. The human longing, this expression of the deepest longing of our soul, is for love and for peace and for goodness and for patience and for comfort and for gentleness and for forgiveness. This is what the heart yearns for when it yearns for home. Now, when it comes to describing God, we're in a bit of a pickle. Because our theology tells us, our doctrines tell us, and our story tells us that we can't do it. Transcendent, that's the word we use for God. Ineffable is another word. In other words, God can't be contained in any words that we can use. But these attributes that we long for when we long for home, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and gentleness and self-control, these attributes of forgiveness and grace and acceptance and belonging, these things are, interestingly, the best words that we have to describe God. While we can't contain God in our minds any more than we can contain the wind in our hands, we nevertheless know when the wind is blowing and we see the leaves on the trees moving. 
And while we can't contain God in our minds, we can know when the wind of God is blowing because we see these attributes being manifest and we know that the divine is moving. When the divine is moving, love is happening. When the divine is moving, peace and kindness and goodness are happening. When the divine is moving, grace and mercy and forgiveness is happening. In theology books, we call these things the attributes of God as though we could define the attributes of God. I prefer to think of it as the signals that God is on the move. Interestingly, these attributes form the yearning of home. What we yearn for when we yearn for home is the best that we have to describe the divine. It is these divine traits that we long for. This is our spiritual nature. And these traits have within themselves a sense of permanence, even though circumstances and people are always changing. So if this is true, if home is elusive, if it's always changing, if it's uncapturable, but if these eternal, present, divine traits are not impermanent, but they do define our heart's true longing, then how can we live? What should we do? Well, two things. First, we can savor those moments in which we experience true home. When with our people, when in our houses we do experience peace and freedom and goodness and gentleness, we can savor those transient temporary moments. We can capture and we can cling to those moments when the divine shines when that Spirit of God shines through into our daily lives and into our families and into our friendships and even to our interactions with strangers, we can savor those moments and we can linger with them and hang on to the experience of those moments. We stop. We take a mental picture. We remember it. We relish it. We enjoy it. I've developed this habit even since I was young when something is afoot and I recognize that there is a a movement of peace or of goodness or of kindness or of love, I tend to get quiet and I tend to watch and I tend to pay close attention and I tend to try and put that into my mind as though it will go away tomorrow and I will want to remember it. This savoring, relishing of these moments that are the glimpses of divine glory. Now, for parents of young children, you should especially heed this because the divine attributes are so often experienced with our children, but those moments so quickly evaporate when we're not looking. The days in which comfort can happen with a kiss are over in a moment. The times when they will sit in your lap and receive love in the form of a story The times that you can experience joy by simply sitting beside you and watching a silly cartoon, these moments are over in a second. So savor, relish, and assign the meaning of the divine to those moments because they are indeed divine. So we can savor and relish the moments when we see them. But second, which is probably more important, we can create those moments wherever we are. When I was... Uh, probably 23, maybe 25, I was at a conference where they were talking about mentoring. And most of the people there were men and most of them were my age and we were recognizing together 
that what was being taught about mentoring wasn't happening for us. We were not being mentored. And we were, in many ways, bemoaning the lack that was happening because we didn't have older people who were taking us under their wing and teaching us about life. Perhaps because their generation was previously occupied creating the American dream, or perhaps because business was booming, or perhaps because the boomers had just developed in their own understanding that greed is good, or for whatever cultural reason, our mentor age people were previously occupied. And so we were sitting there thinking about that reality and in many ways grieving what we had missed. I remember sitting in that meeting and thinking to myself, that's the way it is, and it is. That doesn't mean that's what I will do. I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to have to change that. And somewhere along the way, I discovered the constellation model of mentoring. And here it is. Imagine I've got a pen, and here I am drawing the constellation points north, south, east, west. North, south, east, west. East, west. East and west aren't going to be relevant to this point. I'm going to talk about upward mentoring and downward mentoring. Upward mentoring is when someone teaches you something you don't know. Someone comes along beside you and shows you something that you didn't understand. Then there's in-group mentoring, which helps you see from the perspective of your own group. And then there's out-group mentoring, which helps you challenge the norms of your own group. But then there's downward mentoring. And what I determined on that day is that I had, been, I had lacked in my receipt of downward mentoring. So I determined I was going to go out and get what I needed to get. Primarily, I decided I was going to get it from books. But then I determined also that I was going to give downward mentoring. And lo and behold, when I discovered the constellation model of mentoring, what I discovered was it's just as important to give downward mentoring as it is to receive upward mentoring for one's own development. Because when we teach something, it is cemented into a part of our brain that it didn't previously exist in. And we are actually transformed by the giving of mentoring to people. And so we need to be giving. And that frames what we can do around this construct of home. Because while we may not be able to go back and capture home and have it, and we can't go to the world or to family or to people or to circumstances and say, do me, give me home. What we can do is we can go and give it. And when we do, we get captured up in it. And we become participants in that process. And we can give home. The longings for home are, in fact, longings for love and joy and peace and kindness. And we have this powerful capacity within ourselves to draw from our divine centers and to create divine space for these very attributes wherever we are. Each of us has within ourselves the capacity for kindness for others. Each one of us has within ourselves the capacity to create peace in the world around us, to give to one, another's the, one another the gifts of affirmation and the gifts of acceptance, the very things that we yearn for when we yearn for home. We have within ourselves the capacity to make, and we can do this for a handful of people very deeply. And we can do this for a wider circle of people less deeply, and we can do this for many, many people lightly as we interact with them. As I've been raising my daughter Haven and teaching her how to be her most authentic self, her divine self, one of the things that I have often spoken to her is her capacity to change the dynamic of any group that she is part of the network of friends that she is part of, the youth group that she now leads, or the college dorm that she now leads in, 
um, I said, I've said to her on many occasions, sweetie, you can make those places safe places for people because that's how you're wired. When criticism or judgment shows up in that group, and they always will, you can say something subtle, and you can say, now, come on, we don't do things that way. Or you can say something direct. You can say, hey, cut that out. But in any case, you can beat those things back with a stick, and you will have to. And you can comfort someone when they are the brunt of an assault, and you can challenge someone when they've perpetrated an assault. And she does this, and she does it very well. And the friendship networks that she is part of, by all accounts, become cohesive, and they feel to these young people like home. Teenagers that come within her circle of influence in the youth group that she now leads have a sense of acceptance and affirmation, and it feels to them like home. And this is a power that's given to each one of us according to the gifts that we have. There is some dimension that we have that we can create space for others to experience those longings that together in their amalgamated form become our yearning for home. You have the divine spirit of God within you and you can bring the fruit of God's spirit to bear in the circles around you. You can minister to people's longing for home. Which brings us again to talk about NRCC's food drive for the North Carolina Food Bank. We're a little behind in our goal, you heard this year. I was a meeting of, at a meeting of ministers this week, and after the formal part of the meeting was over, people filtered out, and eventually there was just me and three other ministers and two of their wives uh, together talking. And each of these ministers serves people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. In our own community, we have needs, we have real needs, but I was humbled as I heard the struggles of these communities and my friends, the people who are in their spiritual communities. And through the food bank and through one other agency, they had been given, each one of their churches, food to distribute and the stories that they told me over the 20 minutes that we sat before we left were moving to me. One of the minister's wives told me of a phone call that she had received from a woman who was weeping because she had lost her job at the lower end of the economic spectrum. Her husband was imprisoned and she had three children and they had no heat in their home. And she was too afraid or too unaware of how resources might be available to her. She felt very isolated. She felt very alone. And all she had was their community. And she called in tears because their church had been able to distribute a box of food that they had received from the food bank. And her tears were gratitude because the box of food that she received was she said, this is stuff we can use. This is going to make this week doable, she told us, this lady said. I didn't know what we were going to do this week. Now this week is doable. And they went into the closet in the place where we were, where we were meeting, and they brought out one of the boxes because they had prepared many of them. And they showed me what was inside that box. It was about 10 items. There was a box of Bisquick, there was a box of Ritz crackers, there was some white rice, there were some canned turnip greens, and there was some white pasta and canned pasta sauce. 
And as this minister's wife was telling this, she herself was brought to tears because this woman was someone in her community that she loves and she cares for, which I could completely understand. And their church's benevolence fund is empty. But being able to meet the real need of this person for whom she had such great love gave her such great gratitude that it brought her to tears. Another of the ministers told about their community receiving several boxes of slightly worn coats to distribute to their own community. Many of their people work outside, or if they don't have work, they're looking for work outside. So obviously they've been cold these last weeks, and many of their community didn't have adequate coats to stay warm. And after the Coats were distributed that were in these boxes. There was one young boy who didn't have one and one coat left over that was three or four times his size. But they put it on him and they said it looked like a dress and they zipped it all the way up and they cinched up the sleeves and they tightened them around him and they said that he walked around this uh, the room where he had received this coat and he was ecstatic and his mother wept. And I listened to these stories and I was stirred to a new understanding of what we do when we do our food drive. The food bank is an institution. It's a concept. It's an abstraction. And we tend to not react well to institutions. Institutions don't move our sensibilities. But I want you to understand that the food bank is more than a concept. The food bank is fantastic collection uh, point that has many, many smaller communities that work as distribution points. They work in close proximity to those who know the people who don't have the capacity to go and collect, but do have the capacity to distribute. People who don't have the network to let them know how to navigate the help that is available are resourced by these smaller communities that are able to find resource. And these are people for whom a box of pasta, a box of Bisquick, makes a tremendous difference in their week. So I want to encourage you once again not to let this season slip by because you got busy. You heard me talking with the children. You want to know a secret? I was kind of talking to you. Don't let this food drive slip by because you ran out of time and because you've got presents you've got to buy and you've got things you've got to do and you're thinking to yourself, how am I going to get it all done? Don't let this opportunity slip by because you think of the food bank as an institution and that doesn't move you. I want to encourage you that this is an opportunity to create the experience of home. This is an opportunity for you to touch that which is at the deepest deepest part of human longing. This is a way in which we can express love and care and gentleness and compassion, these divine attributes that make home, home. You are followers of Jesus. I want to encourage you to do good. I want to read you a story as we finish. A young boy has been chosen to play the role of the hypothetical innkeeper in the church pageant. No innkeeper is mentioned in the Bible, but when you have lots of kids, parts must be created. The child is well rehearsed. He has only one line, and that one line is scribbled on a three-by-five card that he holds in his hand. 
Simple enough. Joseph knocks on the door. The innkeeper opens it. He speaks his one earnest line, I'm sorry, but there is no more room in the inn. But come the moment, in spite of the rehearsals, in spite of the three-by-five card, the innkeeper opens the door and he sees Mary with Joseph standing there, and the kid finds himself blown off dramatic course after a moment's hesitation. His is an unscripted innkeeper line. He looks at Mary, and he looks at Joseph, and he says, Oh, come on in, come on in. We'll make room somewhere. (laughs) This week, this coming new year, there will be a knock on the door and it'll be a hassle. But be like the kid. Open your heart. Open your door. Come on in. We'll make room in here somewhere. Hearts of compassion, God, I pray that hearts that find our home in the divine expression of love and care and goodness, I pray that. That we would make home in the world around us, I pray that. Be it so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.